listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Maybe like me, does, does anyone else here live out of fear? Not live with fear, but you live out of fear. Maybe you're consumed with the expectations of others. Maybe your fear leads you to the point where you don't want to let anyone else down. And most of what you do is consumed by this pressing question. Am I enough? What if I leave something undone? What if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not accepted? What if I'm not welcome? Anybody else there? And the rest of you might struggle with lying. <laughs> but what if I could tell you this morning how you could make your spouse or your boss or kids, your teacher or your kids, what, what if I could tell you or your neighbor what if I could tell you, here's how you could make them happy. Here's how I could bring peace and solace and safety to your life. You would say, yes, give that to me. Finally, I know how to live peacefully with others. Finally, I can experience that sense of peace. But friend, this morning, what about your soul? Because we want, we want to experience peace in almost every area of life. But what this morning about your soul what would it look like? What would you feel like? What would the rest of life look like if your soul was safe? If your soul was at rest? If your soul could experience peace? And in a word, it would look like heaven. It would look like heaven. This morning, me and Kingston, we were driving here. Uh, he, he said... Um, he mentioned something about his class. I said, well, this morning, buddy, it's family worship. He said, oh, man. I said, I know you're going to listen to me preach. He said, I know. <laughs> so I said, I said, what's the worst part about family worship? He said, having to sit there. <laughs> Fair enough. So on the way here, so that has nothing to do with my sermon. We're driving uh, just my, my own shame and guilt, uh, my fear of disappointing my seven-year-old. So as we pull into the donut shop, we, we jump out. And I just noticed as, as Kingston got out of the truck, we parked on one side of the parking lot. We had to walk across the way. And not a ton of traffic going across, but some cars. Kingston got out, and he just starts walking. He reaches up with his right hand and grabs my hand and walks across the parking lot. He didn't, he didn't look left and right. Are we going to make it? Okay, that car's coming right here. I think we can time it. Let me see. He had Dad's hand. He was at peace. He knew my dad's not going to let anything happen to me. I don't even have to look. You're like, well, you're a really poor parent for not training him. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> probably, but maybe I'm a really good parent. All right, so uh, don't, don't, don't hate on me. I'm, I'm fearful of you judging me. But, but I want him to know that, man, if, you, if I've got your hand, you can trust me. And he did. And I've never told him that. Hey, King, so I'm holding your hand. You don't have to worry about anything else in life. No, absolutely not. But he instinctively reached up and grabbed my hand. He didn't have a fear in the world because he knew my father's got me. His soul was at rest even in that moment. So this morning as we look at the word of God, I want us to 
to feel that presence of Christ that we see right here. Not just in an ethereal, outward, emotional type of way, but in a soul-satisfying, soul-safety type of way. One that grips our heart when we look at the Word of God. This is all we have this morning. The first thing that I want us to see, and thank you, Caleb, for reading the passage to us, but the first thing that we see in these first uh, few verses is that Jesus walks the way of grief. Maybe you've heard of the Via Dolorosa. The, the way of grief is literally what that means. And so as Jesus is convicted of sin, if you haven't been here with us through the book of Luke, uh, I would encourage you to go back and, and listen to those sermons. This is the very end of Jesus' life and his ministry. He hasn't sinned at all. But as he's convicted of creating an uprising, of being a rebel, he then takes his cross and begins walking toward the site of the crucifixion. So this is what we call the Via Dolorosa the way of grief, grief, but Jesus walks the way of grief so that we can walk the way of escape. And we saw in verse number 26, we actually grabbed this last week at the end of that passage, but we see Simon of Cyrene here who is coming up from the country and he laid on him, Simon carries this cross for Jesus. We don't know if Jesus was carrying the entire cross, but we do know that normally a prisoner would have to at least carry the cross beam. And so they'd be carrying that beam walking down the road. And this is Rome's way of saying, don't mess with us. If you rebel against us, this is what you're going to get. It's a sign for everyone else. And we see here the response of the people in verse number 27. Around him was a great multitude of people and women who were mourning and lamenting. That word lamenting literally means they were torn asunder emotionally. They were in the depths of grief looking at Jesus Christ. But notice what Jesus tells them in verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. What tenderness, what love and compassion that Jesus is taking on the wrath of the Father, the sins of me and you. And he says, don't worry about me. Worry for your own souls. Because while this is happening to me, and here there's an ominous warning about what's going to happen in 70 AD when the Jewish religious system comes, cra comes crashing down. He says, don't worry about me, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. He's saying, you need to worry about yourself. It's better that you never had kids. That's how bad it's going to be. The judgment of God, the wrath of God, while it's happening to me right now, it's going to be coming upon you real soon. So make sure your soul is safe. Verse 31, for if they do these things when the wood is green, in other words, he's saying, I'm perfect. It's really hard to burn green wood. He says, what about you who are full of sin? You're nice dry wood. When the fire comes, you're gonna be lit like that. The tenderness of Christ here on the supreme day of atonement, on the Yom Kippur, he looks at the women in the crowds, he says, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for your souls. Be ready. Be ready. Turn today. And then in verse number 32, we see this next section of, of scriptures here. He gets there, and this is where Christ is placed upon the cross. But we see that Jesus refuses to save himself so that we, friends, as Christ looks at us, so that we can be redeemed. We notice here it says, he was put there with two other criminals, History would tell us that he's put him between them. And they were led away. He was led away with them. They came to the place called the skull. In other words, this, this place of Golgotha. Maybe you've heard everybody say Golgotha. Golgotha. 
Yeah, it's called the place of the skull. And I've been to Israel before. It's because it's this rock formation just outside of the city. And in the rock, there are hollows in it, natural formations, but it looks like a skull. And as you look from the city of Jerusalem, you look out, it looks like a giant skull. That's where Jesus was placed upon the cross. Especially according to prophecy, we know that Christ was placed outside of the city. So everything is happening according to the ultimate plan of God. We see your Christ's place upon the cross. It's interesting that Luke just mentions this almost in passing. It says there in verse number 33, we just saw it. They got to Golgotha, the place of the skull. There they crucified him. There they crucified him. He doesn't talk a whole lot about crucifixion, but we know crucifixion to be a terrible practice. In fact, the word excruciating comes from a word that the, that the Romans created to describe the pain and agony that happens on the cross. Because it wasn't, hey, you're guilty, then boom, we're going to take you and put you on the cross, and that's it. Before they were crucified, and we see this in other gospel accounts, we see that Jesus Christ was beaten after being betrayed for us. He was whipped at least 39 times and probably more. So what that meant is that the Roman guards, they would take this, what's called a cat of nine tails. And you've probably heard about this before. But in your mind's eye, imagine this is Jesus Christ who has just lived perfectly for us. And he's looking at us even here saying, this is for you. This is so that your soul can be safe. This is so that you can have assurance and peace in this life and for all of eternity. And they would take this whip and it would have pieces of glass and bone and metal. And they would take it and they would whip it 10 to 15 feet away. And they would make sure that it was stuck in the flesh of the criminal. And they would kind of just tug on it just a little bit to make sure it was there. Then they would yank it as hard as they could, tearing it across the back of Jesus Christ. In fact, historians would say that there would be points in time when it would grab a rib. And you would see a rib go flying across the courtyard there. It was a brutal, terrible murder. And as they were crucified, we, we imagine these crosses way up in the air, but they were probably about eye level so that the crowd could come by and jeer and yell and spit and mock those who were being hanged on the cross. And you were hanging there with these spikes in your wrists and in your feet. And oftentimes they would, they, they would rather kill themselves by asphyxiating themselves so they would let go of the tension. Therefore, they'd run out of breath. You're like, man, this is kind of brutal for kids. Absolutely. That way they would be suffocated. So here's what the Roman guards would do instead is they would take a, a piece of wood and they would actually fasten it to the cross so that you could not release yourself, so that you had to stay in this position, sometimes for up to 10 days on the cross. The punishment, friends, that we deserved was placed on Christ. He went through all of that for us. And we see here, I used to read this and be like, oh, at least they offered him something to drink. At least they offered him sour wine. But in Jerusalem, that sour wine, it actually came from these public restrooms. And it was only used by the rich. And the way the restroom looked, and again, I've been to this place in Israel. It's crazy. You walk in, you're like, what is this? And they said, this is a, this is a big bathroom. Interesting. So there were different holes in the walls kind of going around. And if you were rich enough to afford this, you're like, I'd rather be rich enough not to afford this. But you would go and you would sit and you would relieve yourself. And then they had different servants who behind you would take a sponge 
and they would make sure that you were all clean, ready to go. Sort of like a, a bidet of sorts, but they would do that for you, but then they would clean that sponge off in sour wine. So as we see here, Christ, whose body at this point is beyond recognition, the guards take that sponge on a stick and they offer it to Jesus and say, hey, here, you thirsty? You want something to drink? This is where it came from. We, we can sit and think, man, I don't know if I could do that. Other, other men did that, but other men deserved that. Other women deserved that punishment. Jesus Christ had never done anything wrong. Even those who wanted him dead could not find him guilty of doing anything wrong. So when we see those words, they crucified him. It's, it's a loaded statement here. And look at verse number 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There is not a clearer picture of Christ's beauty than as he hangs here in agony and offers forgiveness to his tormentors. His number one care is not for his own soul, but it's for those who were crucifying him. Verse 35, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Friends, Jesus could not save everyone. He couldn't save everyone. He had to choose that day. Am I going to save myself or am I going to save, put your name in the blank. He could either save himself, the one who was righteous, or he could save sinners. He could not save both. And Jesus denied himself in all humility so that your soul could be safe for all eternity. He refused to save himself so that you could be redeemed. And then we see this conversation beginning in verse number 39 with these other two criminals. We see that Jesus is numbered with the transgressors, transgressors so that we can have his presence. If you look there at verse number 40, but the other rebuked him saying, he rebukes this other bad guy. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Notice what else this man says. He echoes the words of Pilate and of Herod already. He says, but this man, Jesus Christ, has done nothing wrong. Even this guy recognizes it. So why is he doing this? Why is he taking this, he says right here, the due reward? Friends, it's for all sinners. What does Romans 6.23 say? For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. He's doing this for us, the most awful death, eternal separation from God. Notice verse 42, though. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The only thing that you must do is plead to God for his mercy. That's it. There's no other penance. There's no other, ah, if you look good enough, if you change your life in enough good ways, this man did nothing but cry out to God for his mercy. What does Luke say in the next book, the book of Acts? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Simply call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then we see in verse number 43, here's the promise fulfilled. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in. Oh, Jesus said to him, verse 43, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, everybody say, psychopanachia. Yeah, that was better than some of you adults. Take notes. Psychopanachia is this heresy of soul sleep. It's the, it's the idea that once you die, your soul goes to sleep for a while or goes into purgatory, and then eventually you get to see Christ. What does Jesus say right here? He destroys that theological argument. He says, today, friend, you're going to see me in paradise. Now, we often, um, we often gravitate, to the in, uh, gravitate to the in paradise piece of this. Man, I can't wait for paradise. I can't wait for streets of gold. I can't wait till it's not hot. I can't wait till it's not too cold. I can't wait till we can play football and I can eat without growing. Like, it would, it's just gonna be, I can't wait for paradise. And we, we gravitate to that. But we missed a couple of words right before that. Notice, today you will be what? With me. You know what's even better than paradise? Is being with Christ. What's better than any paradise that you can create on this world, any ideal, any better life, any best life that you can create in this world is being with Christ. Being with Christ. One of the, the traitors beside Jesus said, come on, Jesus, why can't you save us? If you're the king of the Jews, then save us. The other one said, Jesus, simply remember me. One of these men wanted Jesus for what he had to offer. One of these men wanted Jesus for the sake of Jesus. Which one are we this morning? Do we run to Jesus because we long to be in his presence? Because we love him? Because he is sufficient? He is enough for us? Or do we want what he has to offer us here in this life? And I would plead with you to run to Jesus Christ. We see, beginning in verse number 44, the death of Christ and Jesus enters our deep darkness to bring us into his eternal life. He enters into darkness so that we can step into light. We see here it's about the sixth hour, and this would be noon, high noon. Their days, their hourly system began at 6 a.m. So at high noon, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, so until about 3 o'clock. I want us to notice here in these next few verses, in verses 44 through 46, Notice almost the reversal or the breaking of creation that we see here. Verse 45, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. In Genesis chapter one, God the Father said, let there be light. Here in Luke 23, God the Father says, let there be darkness. In Genesis chapter one, he said, I'm gonna create ex nihilo from nothing. I'm going to speak everything into existence and it's going to be good. Here in Luke 23, he says, I'm gonna make these things fail. They were broken. In Genesis chapter two, we see that God the Father breathed life into creation, into humanity. And here we see that Jesus breathed his last Adam and Eve in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, they had the presence of God the Father right there with them. They went from light into darkness, and their sin pushed them into shame. It pushed them into hiding. In Genesis chapter 3, after they had sinned, what does God put there at the entrance 
of the Garden of Eden, an angel with a flaming sword saying, no admittance, stop, you can't come back in here. My presence is off limits to you. But what does Jesus do right here in Luke chapter 23? He takes upon all of himself the wrath of the Father and he steps into sin. He becomes sin for us. He steps into darkness. He steps into temptation. He steps into destruction so that he can reach back all the way to the Garden of Eden and rip that sign down and say, no more is there going to be a sign that says, stop, do not enter. He says, the presence of God is open for you. I have done this. And the veil is torn in two. The veil that separates mankind from the presence of God there in the temple. He says, no more. A 90-foot double, double thickness veil. He says, it is now torn because of my sacrifice. You don't just get a better life. You don't get a better family. You don't get more money. You don't get less stress. You get me. You get my presence. There are a couple different animals used in this Passover week. We know this is the end of Passover. But in Jewish tradition, uh, they had a couple of goats. One of the goats was, was slaughtered there on behalf of the people. The other goat they had was called a scapegoat. And that goat, the, they, the priest would take his hands and he would symbolically place the sins of the people on this goat, this scapegoat. Then they would send that goat out into the wilderness or literally in the Hebrew, into the darkness. And they would, he would send it out as a representation of your sin being sent so far away that you cannot see it. And friends, right here at the end of Passover week, Jesus Christ, he became the scapegoat for us. Our sin was placed upon him and he took it into the darkness. He didn't deserve it. That goat had never done anything wrong. Jesus Christ had never sinned at all in his life. And he perfectly fulfills the will of the Father. In verse number 46, the, the father who had taken that cup of wrath and poured it out on him, what does Jesus Christ say to him? He says, Father, back into your hands, I commit my spirit. What a beautiful picture of love. That the father would trust, that the son would trust the father that much. Have you trusted Jesus Christ with your future? Enough to say, man, whatever life looks like, however bad it gets, Whatever it costs to follow you, I surrender all of this to you. Jesus Christ breathes his last. And then we see Jesus is, is buried in a tomb. We see that J Joseph, who is from the Jewish town of Arimathea, he was a member of the council, but he was good and righteous. Notice we see this phrase, he was looking for the kingdom of God. We saw back at the very beginning of Jesus' life as we saw Simeon, who was waiting to see baby Jesus Remember when they, when they walk up and uh, we see John the Baptist, he says, finally, I get to see John the Baptist. He got to see Jesus. Finally, behold, he is here. He was looking forward to heaven. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, was actually working with Nicodemus. If you remember from John chapter three, they were the only two solid councilmen that the whole Sanhedrin had. And they were working together. We, we read about Nicodemus and other gospel accounts. And they take the body of Jesus Normally what would happen uh, if someone was crucified, there were two different options. If someone was crucified simply because um, of some sort of crime, the body was given back to the family. But Jesus was not convicted of any crime. He was convicted as a rebel, 
as a traitor of uh, the nation of Rome. So what would happen with their bodies is they were actually taken out to the desert and they were just piled up and the vultures were able to take advantage of them. That would have been Jesus. But we see Pilate here, whether it's the, obviously we know the will of God is, is uh, overarching all things, but I don't know if God's changed Pilate's life. I don't know if Pilate had some amount of compassion. I don't know. But we know that Pilate told Joseph of Arimathea, you can have the body of Christ. He shouldn't have, but he takes Christ's body and he goes and he prepares it. He places it in a tomb. They wrap it in cloths. They put spices on the body. What's interesting here is this is a royal burial. Everything in verses 53 through 56, it indicates that this was a king. It also indicates that they were not expecting a resurrection. So even though they had seen Jesus this whole time and listened to him in person, the, the spices were given so that the decaying body would not stink. And they expected his body to decay. Now, I don't know what that says about their faith. We could take a lot of things and say, well, what about? But I would ask you, I would challenge you this morning, friend. We know the truth of God's word. And how does our faith look? We can look at these folks and say, oh, man, oh, you have little faith. Don't you understand that Jesus has said this? Don't you understand the word of God says this? Don't you know right from wrong? But what if that mirror is turned and placed back on us? We're the ones who are broken, who have fallen. And we, like these folks, get to look to Jesus Christ, who is faithful, the author and the finisher of our faith. If you see in verse number 52 there, I think this is important for the whole meta-narrative of Luke. It says, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. We know that Luke is writing this book to whom? Theophilus. Theophilus. Yeah, we saw that in chapter 1 and verse number 4. He's writing it to Theophilus. This is important for Theophilus, this Greek young man, to know Jesus was actually dead. Pilate would have wanted to know that Jesus was dead. He's not going to, ah, I think Jesus, I don't know, we don't know what's Jesus had finished the work for each and every one of us. He paid sin's debt to the nth degree. He took the wrath of God on himself. May we not just overlook this because we sing songs about it, because we know this part of the story, but may we be reminded that all that needs to be done has been done. All that needs to be done has been done. And as Jesus hanging there upon the cross with his arms outstretched. Friend, his arms are outstretched again this morning for you, calling you, welcoming you into the family, ready to embrace you. Not because of who you are or what you have done, but because all that needs to be done has been done. You are not too far gone for Jesus to redeem. You are not too good that you don't need Jesus' finished work for you. His arms are open wide. He welcomes you to surrender. He welcomes you to life. He welcomes you into his kingdom, a better kingdom. He was born. He identified with us as humans. He lived perfectly to fulfill the Old Testament law. He died the death that we deserve to die. And we're going to see next Sunday that he rose three days later, conquering, defeating hell, Satan, our enemy, 
so that we don't have to live with fear any longer, but our soul can be safe in the arms of Jesus. Amen? Imagine for a minute, as we enter into this time of communion, which represents the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But imagine for a minute if you're a Joseph of Arimathea or, or Nicodemus. Imagine prepping Christ's body as you take it off the cross. He has the holes there in his hand. He has, he has the crown of thorns upon his head. He's been beaten, bloodied. Imagine the grief, the compassion, the tenderness of dealing with the body knowing that those nails, those thorns, that blood, it was for you. It was for you. Such tenderness and emotion. And this morning, brother and sister, he wants you to know that his sacrifice was for you. That's why his presence on earth was necessary. Because he loved you so much. This morning, this bread and this juice as we physically, tangibly take this, it's an expression of the presence of Jesus Christ for you. So I would plead with you this morning to fall upon his mercy, revel in his grace, remember what Jesus Christ has done for you, rejoice, and in light of his sacrifice, repent of your sinfulness. Let's enjoy the presence of Christ this morning in communion as we partake. Family, you're invited to join me.